Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. Good morning and welcome to Football Digest. Um, The FA Cup third round is done and dusted. We know the fourth round ties. We'll have a look back on the FA Cup third round. And of course, the Premier League um, hasn't really stopped, but now back in action um, this weekend. Arsenal with a big game. We'll look ahead to that. We'll look ahead to all the stuff that's happening off the field and to what might or might not happen um, between now and the end of the transfer window. Joining me are the um, Chief Sports Writer from the Daily Star, Jeremy Cross, uh, David McDonnell, our man in Manchester, amongst other things, for the Daily Mirror. And Chris McKenna, who from the Daily Star, who is just thawing out uh, along with me, having been alongside me at Goodison Park last night. Chris, I just want to start there because it's wound me up that game last night. What's wound me up is Roy Hodgson taking off not just Eze, but Tarek Mitchell, Nathaniel Klein, after 60 minutes, Palace one down. It's the FA Cup, and he's essentially saying he's sending three lads on who he wants to have a look at. I mean, what message does that send out about the importance of the FA Cup? I know they've got a game, but it's at 12.30 on Saturday. They've hardly played in the last couple of weeks. I just want your view on that. To me, it was a moment I thought, you know what, if anyone should uphold the traditions and the values of the FA Cup, I thought it might have been Roy, but obviously not. Yeah, absolutely bizarre. Um, you got to feel sorry for those Palace fans who made that trip up there. They obviously made their feelings clear when they sang it. At Hodgson, you don't know what you're doing um, when he took Eze off and, and Mitchell and Klein. Um, it just boggles the mind. It's Yeah, they're on a bad run. It's one win in 11 now. And yeah, they've got Arsenal at half 12. But they've got Arsenal at half 12. It's not like it's a big crunch game against Burnley or Luton or somebody where they must win to kind of drag themselves away. They're very unlikely to get a result against Arsenal. Um, Go for the FA Cup, have a little bit of a cup run. And when you mention Hodgson, I mean, what age is he now? 77, whatever he is. Why why is he still doing it? But if he is still doing it, why not have one more go at at the cup? I'm not saying they're going to go and win it, but go get it. The next round was a home tie with Luton, very winnable. Then you don't know what you're going to get. Then suddenly you could be in the quarterfinals and you never know. Um, But to rest players after, as you mentioned there, Andy, that was their first game since the first game in 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 the, in the against Everton. So it was the fourth of January. So it's not like they're they've been in a hectic schedule and those players have just had a a tough Premier League game at the weekend and then they've they've had a week and a half off, um, nearly two weeks, thirteen days. So totally, yeah, disrespect to the FA Cup and. And it, you know what, it doesn't help people, and I do agree with these people, that we need to protect the replays for the for teams, but it doesn't help um, that argument when you see um, a Premier League team do that um, and win a game that was very winnable at that time. Also, Palace have, Palace have gone out of the third round for a couple, four times in the last five seasons now. So, you know, they've got history for this. And, you know, every every fan of every team loves a good cup run. And Chris referred to the one one in eleven. Just, just go there and try and win the game, just to get some confidence back. Because now that they're on the floor even more, and they've got to play Arsenal on the weekend, it's it's bonkers. And I know Robson's had a great career, you know, he's had a long career, and you know, largely successful one, but he's not won much. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're all singing from the same um, hymn sheet there on that one. It was a good win for Everton, though, Dave. Um, you know, they, they hadn't won in, I think they'd lost, um, they hadn't won in six matches across all competitions. And obviously they'd had another tough week. The start of the week brought more um, PSR charges. Um, off the field, it doesn't look great for them at the moment, does it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. And uh, but I think they're expecting these latest charges. Um, you know, they've been working in conjunction with the Premier League, um, so I don't think it will have come as a, a surprise to them. But um, certainly, the statement they put out was a lot, lot punchier than the one that Nottingham Forest, who also got charged, put out. Um, it's a difficult one for Everton. Obviously, they've appealed against the ten-point deduction uh, for the original charges um, and awaiting the outcome on, of, of that. Um, but listen, it's, it, it, it all goes back to how, how poorly the club has been run. I know there's a lot of sympathy for Everton in terms of the, and I agree with that, that the 10-point um, penalty is, is harsh given when you look at what the money was used for. I think it was the discrepancy was over the money used for this, the new stadium. I think it was over interest payments, if, if, I'm, if I'm correct. Um, and so they're in, obviously appealing against that, and, and, and their belief is that that, that, that money, um, I think it was interest payments, as I say, was admissible in terms of um you know, being being ad backs if you like um for for compliance with the um profit and sustainability rules now that that's ongoing um but i mean you have to say you know the the way they responded okay they've had a bad run you know in recent games but the way they responded initially you know had they not had that 10 point deduction they'd be on what 26 27 points now well clear of of, of the relegation zone so i think it was important for them to get that win um, you know, over Palace and, and really continue the continue their cup run. Um, but as you say, Danny, you know they've got bigger battles ahead in terms of uh, you know fighting the Premier League in terms of the points deductions. I mean, Chris, well, what what? Um, it's hard to it's it's hard to second guess another independent commission. It's hard to second guess the outcome of Everton's appeal against the current ten point deduction. But if you had to guess, if you had to make an educated guess of what the final outcome would be. And bear in mind, our understanding is that the Premier League will want whatever punishment is given for this second breach. And don't forget, I think everyone should remember that Everton and Forest have admitted breach, and you know they're not contesting the idea that they haven't breached the um, the profit and sustainability rules. They have. What would be your guess that the final outcome of the punishment would be at the end of this season in terms of total, including the ten points they've got now? Including whatever might happen with the second independent commission. What's the feeling on the other side? Obviously, they, they, they feel they've been very hard done by with 10 points. So I think there's a feeling that that may come down a little. I don't think it'll just be wiped. Um, I think they may be left with four to six points on that. On the second charge, I think they kind of believe that it won't be as harsh, the punishment, because a lot of it overlaps. So it's only this is an, only another extra season on top, and that two or three, however you want to look at the COVID seasons, are kind of overlapped in this from the first charge. So if I had to make a guess, I think I think the first charge will come down to about six points, and they may end up getting another two for this one. So it'll be eight in total, um, which shouldn't be enough to send them down. It by the end of the season, you would hope, but you never know. Um, you never know how the, the run is going to go because, yes, they have, uh, as they said there, they after the first points deduction, they went on a great run and, and pull 
pulled so many points back, but it's it's become a bit tougher since then. Um, Christmas and December wasn't great for them. So, um, yeah, I think it'll be eight points, and that hopefully for them is not enough to send them down over that. And I think the Premier League would nearly nearly probably secretly want that to happen because then at least it's not cost everything and it then it does not throw the legal challenges down the line on it. Yeah, yes, yeah, sure. I admired optimism that eight points, um, they'll be able to withstand that and not go down. Um, I think that would be touch and go then. I think it would certainly go right down to the wire if if the eight-point deduction or even the 10 they've currently got stands. Jeremy, I mean, it, it's it, it's a big subject. You probably need an hour or two, but give me a minute or two on whether or not financial fair play, profits and sustainability rules, call it what you want, whether it's good for the Premier League. I don't think so. I mean, look, it's damaged the transfer window this month because no clubs appear to have any money to spend. And if, even if they do, they're inclined not to spend it because they keep the powder dry until summer. So, you know, it's been a very quiet window so far, and I think that will continue. There may be a few signings, but I don't think there's going to be anything significant from the big clubs. Um, and the what made me sort of wince a bit when Richard Mastard appeared before the, he's the chief executive of the Premier League, appeared before the government committee this week, was he referred to Everton and Forest as small clubs which I thought was ridiculous language to use for someone of his responsibility because it's almost like the backdrop to the Everton scenario is that the City issue has been going on for a long, long time. It's ridiculous how long that investigation has taken. And yet Everton are dealt with rapidly uh, and more efficiently. I know there are different charges and stuff, but it's almost like there's one rule for one club and one rule for another in the Premier League, and that's quite alarming. And, you know, we had Newcastle coming out last weekend saying... We, you know, Newcastle, one of the richest clubs on the planet, saying we're going to have to sell players, up and coming players, to raise funds to help balance the books. So, you know, I don't think it's working. I think there are plans in place to review the FFP um, rule book um, at the end of the season, and hopefully they will, because it doesn't appear to be a fair playing field. I mean, I think when they review it, they'll only. I, I, I think one of the main things is they'll they'll probably increase the amount you're allowed to lose. It's 105 million over three years now. Obviously, that hasn't taken into account inflation and global economic issues. They might do, do that. I mean, I think you've got to remember, though, that it is the 20 Premier League clubs who've agreed it. They've agreed it. You know, you, you can't whinge, well, the, oh, it's not good for the Premier League. It's not good. Well, hang on a minute. They all did it. You know, it's only a private members club. They've agreed the rules between all 20 of them. They agreed, by the way, to have no set tariff for how much you break it by and what penalty you get. They've done all this, you know, and, and they're quite happy with it. And the ones who've abided by it aren't being punished. I mean, that's that's all I would say. And I do find it quite intriguing. Newcastle, you know, um, whinging about like not being able to, you know, sign players. Well, you know, it would help if you didn't spend fifty million quid on someone who was about to be banned for a year and a half for for, for betting. And I quite like the idea that you have to. I don't know. You've got to be good in the transfer market. You can't just blanket bomb it with loads of cash and hope one or two work out. I like the idea that you might have to sell. You're absolutely right, Danny. That's what Manchester United have done, in a sense. Um, you know, I mean, they, um, as, as, as as Crossy alluded to there, you know, they're having to rely on loan signings in this window, just as they were a year ago, uh, last January. Um, and that's, they say, because of the PSR, you know, um, profit and sustainability rules, FFP, call it what you will. But it's also a legacy of their overspending. 
you know, they spent 400 million under Eric Ten Hag in 18, 19 months. Uh, and not all of it very, very effectively. If you look at Anthony, you know, 82 million. Um, Rasmus Hoyland, okay, he's, he's a young prospect, but 72 million. Casemiro, at 30 years old, you know, 70 million. That's, and that's before you factor in the wages that these guys are on. You know, um, Casemiro, 350 grand a week. So, yeah, as you say, Donny, the clubs can complain about it and complain about financial fair play, but they have to get their own houses in order first. And also, as you say, they voted this in. You know, it, it's the collective clubs that voted this. So everyone knows the rules. Everyone knows, you know, what they can and can't spend. So it, it ultimately comes down to the individual clubs to make sure, and as, as Wolves have done, you know, look at Wolves and Palace. You know, Wolves cut their cloth accordingly, didn't they? Um, you know, cut transfer spending, sold players, uh, and they've fallen within the the threshold. Um, Everton haven't, and, and Forest haven't, and, and they're paying the price for that. You mentioned United and finances. While we're on that particular subject of finances, etc., United, obviously, to Jim Ratcliffe, um, a few of us there, well, myself and you, Disco, we're, we're in the... Um, briefly met him on Sunday. He didn't have a lot to say, did he, to be fair? No, no. It was more what he didn't say that was interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, he, he did say, yeah, yeah, he, he said hello, and, and, then, and then it was inappropriate for him to ask any other questions. And he's met fans, of course, as well the other night, didn't he, I think. Um, so just keep us up to date now. What, what do you, interest in the documents that have now been filed regarding the takeover and things that we already knew, but we're now seeing in print, stuff like the fact that in 18 months' time, the Glazers could force him to sell his shares if they get a, a bid for the entire um, company. What is the biggest take from the last couple of days of what we know about the Ratcliffe takeover now? Well, I think the biggest take is is how hands-on he's been. Uh, now, you can, call that, you can call that a charm offensive, you can call that PR uh, strategy, but he's done more in you know 48 hours in Manchester than the Glazers have done uh, in almost 20 years in terms of fan engagement. Um, you know, he came. I mean, we, you know, he was very kind to us as journalists, saying, "You know, you're very important people. I want to meet you." That's that. That's all very, very nice. You know, we're all very malleable, aren't we? You know, we like our egos being stroked. But the really important people are the fans. Um, and he held meetings with, um, you know, the Manchester United Supporters Trust, uh, local, um, you know, leaders in the in the Manchester uh, uh, community, uh, and all the reports from those fans and those fan groups were. That you know he was saying the right things that he that he wanted to bring success back to the um, you know to Manchester United on the pitch. You know the Glazers have been um, as everyone knows have been focused and and you know laser focused on commercial growth and, and lining their own pockets and, and using Manchester United as a kind of cash cow for their own personal wealth. Uh, Ratcliffe has stressed that he's in it for sporting um, you know um, achievements. He wants Manchester United to be restored to being the the premier team in England and and Europe. And I think the initial soundings from fans is that is that they like what they hear. You know, he's committed to the club. He's committed to um, you know the redevelopment of Old Trafford or certainly improving it. Um, he wants to you know bring drag Manchester United up to the standard that is now being set by Manchester City, Liverpool, Arsenal, and Tottenham, if you like, on the pitch and off the pitch with their stadium. So I think he's done a lot in in that sense. But of course, he's limited in terms of what he can do on the pitch because the money isn't there. Uh, you know the spending power isn't there. I mean, we're looking at the figures that came out yesterday from Manchester United. Their, their quarterly figures, their Champions League exit, or actually European exit, because they because they, they fell out of Europe completely, didn't even make the Europa League. 
that could cost them up to 45 million. They've had to readjust, the club have had to readjust their uh, revenue projections for the year. And it, it, it could go down by as much as 45, 50 million. Um, you know, and so that loss of revenue from no European games, uh, from no, no gate receipts, no income from TV money from European games, it all has a knock on effect. So I think it's going to be a very, very, um, I wouldn't say grim picture, but it's, you know the, the reality is the financial picture is pretty bleak for Manchester United and Jim Ratcliffe. So I think he's limited in what he can do, but I think his intentions, you know, according to what he's telling us and telling um, you know stakeholders and, and fan groups and, and, and local leaders in the in, in in the Greater Manchester area, his intentions are in the right place, which they haven't had from the Glazers over you know nineteen twenty years. Crossy, the the so Jim was there obviously at um, at Old Trafford on. Sunday, um, a lot of attention on him. On the pitch, United scored a couple of good goals, good finish from Hoyland, good finish from Rashford. But apart from those two goals, really, you would have to say that Spurs are very, very depleted Spurs without Kuliseski, without Son, obviously still without the likes of Madison. Um, Spurs were, were the better side. They had more possession, they had created more chances, they had more corners. So it was pretty much the same old for United. We're talking a lot about off the pitch now. What does Ratcliffe and Brailsford, do they stick by Ten Hag? Is Ten Hag the man for the long term, do you think? Will they have a view on that already? I'd imagine so, because listen, Ratcliffe only been to his first game, but he'll have been watching United consistently for months and months from the start of the season. So, you know, me and Disco had to write pieces on this earlier in the week, and Disco summed it up quite succinctly when he said, United are basically consistently inconsistent. They They can be pretty good one game, Pretty, pretty dreadful the next. You know, they have defensive issues. They can't hold on to leads. Um, they would have lost to Tottenham. Had Tottenham had the best players available. That's that's without question. And have they made progress under Tenard? No, because if you look at other teams, look at Villa under Emery, how, how much better they are. They don't seem to have any identity United. They don't have any fear factor. Teams aren't scared of going to Old Trafford anymore. I'd be shocked if Ten Hag's still in charge at start next season. I really would. I don't see what, if there's any value in sacking him now, but you know they would have to have a dramatic upturn in fortunes between now and May for Ten Hag to still be to still resemble the manager to take that team forward, which is in, going into a new era with Ratcliffe's ownership coming in. I, I just want to ask you, just just staying with you here, Jess. I, I just want to ask you about the anti-Martial story. Um, I think you're nice to say, obviously, that it's just it's nothing out of the ordinary. But but he's training alone, is he? A lot of people training alone in Manchester United. The story was written um, yesterday, um, last night, and United were issued quite a strong denial that it was true. But whichever way you look at it, there's something very odd going on with Anthony Marshall because he never plays. You know, his contract's being allowed to run down. He just he just doesn't do anything. You don't see the point of him. Never hear of him. He never seemed to be in the team. So it wouldn't surprise me. Look, he made Sancho train on his own, you know, so he's, he, it wouldn't surprise me if it is a, it's correct, that story. But clearly, Martial and Ten Hag just don't get on at all and he can't wait to leave the building. Chris, I mean, I, 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 I gather from what, from, what, from what the lads say there about the finances, et cetera, we're probably not likely to see um, any sort of ingoings or outgoings at United, I wouldn't have thought. Obviously, Sancho's gone. I don't know. Can, can you see any 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 transfer activity? Not just at United, but it was touched on before by Jeremy about FFP and the transfer window. This transfer window is in incredibly stark contrast 
to the equivalent last year, isn't it? Yeah, there's um, it. It seems so so quiet. Um, and as you say, I think it's a knock on effect. So both clubs haven't got money to spend, and then sort of not willing to let players go either because they then can't maybe replace them with what they want at this point. So the whole kind of there's no movement anywhere, and it would take maybe a big deal to happen somewhere to kind of have a kick on effect. But I just don't see that happening. Um, I can't see anything other than the loans in into Man United, but. Even then, who who who's available? Like who's their web host this January? There doesn't seem to be that. They play down links to Karen Benzema, um, so that's one that's it doesn't look like going to happen. He may go somewhere else in Europe. Um, Liverpool no plans to do any business at, at this stage. Just a couple of loans out of young players, unless they got a, a, a an injury out of the blue in the next couple of weeks. Everton obviously um, unlikely to do anything and. And Man City and Arsenal saying that they don't have the money to bring in what they need, which is a forward. So it's not a great window. And I don't think the um, deadline day is looking too exciting for Sky Sports in a couple of weeks. Even Chelsea haven't signed anyone. No, not today, to be fair. Yeah, but so does that mean... So I'm just going to go on to, you know, one... A striker who's making his comeback from a ban this weekend. And Ivan Tony said... I think two Sky, talking of Sky, said yesterday that, like, you know, oh, he, he wants to play for a big club and you never know. Didn't rule it out this this January. Um, first first thing on that is that I think what Ivan Tony should really be saying is, look, you know, I'm concentrating on Brentford. They've stood by me. It was me who did wrong. I got banned. They've stood by me. I'm now going to help them because they're struggling rather than saying, listen, I want to go and play for a big club and, and, and win loads of things. Perhaps he should have said that. However. We know that Chelsea and Arsenal, for example, are both in need of a of a goal scorer. Um, can they get him within the FFP rules? I mean, do we actually know that that is not an option for them now, or will Tony Disco will Tony go in in this window? I don't think so, because I mean, how much would Ivan Tony cost now? 50, 60 million? Well, say 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 Tony would be seventy five, eighty million. Say clubs aren't going to spend that in this window because. Obviously, they don't have the money because it falls in the threshold of, of, of this financial fair play um, window. Now, that, that runs till June the 30th, I think. But, I mean, I just don't see any club spending that kind of money in this window because it's simply not there. Um, I agree with you that Tony should be, um, you know, I'm Tony should be more respectful of Brentford in terms of his public comments, as you say. But in terms of his future, um, I, I don't see him going anywhere until the summer. I mean, that's when these kind of big, big money moves tend to happen anyway, when the players that... Uh, you know, higher caliber players become available, um, but I don't see. I mean, as you say, Chelsea and Arsenal are after strikers. Manchester United need a, a, a proper goal scorer because at the moment, Hoyland and Rashford aren't. Okay, they scored at the weekend, but they're not doing it on a regular basis. But I don't see anyone, you know, spending that kind of money in in, in this window at all. That was Ivan Tony doing. I'd be focusing, like you said, on knuckling down for Brentford, his employers, and trying to bring press Gareth Southgate and Chanel in the season to get in the England squad for the Euros. Wouldn't be sat on TV talking about, you know, I want to go to a big club. It's ridiculous behaviour. Absolutely, mate. I, I can feel a column coming on, pal. Done, mate. Oh, you've done that, yeah. You've That's not as well, though. People aren't forgetting. They had to do uh, David Raya as a loan because they were so close to PSR rules themselves. So where are they going to now pluck out 70, 80 million for a, a striker? So that's one avenue. Chelsea's the only way to go, but... 
even they, how, how could they do it after the money they've spent? It, it'd be ridiculous. Yeah, you would assume you would assume that Chelsea would would have to would have to sell. I'd, uh, you know, the, the unthinkable. Well, what, what's unthinkable in many Chelsea fans' eyes is they sell a Conor Gallagher, a Conor Gallagher, for example, or Brojet, obviously, who who both are pure profit because both are academy products. Um, however, I say I think the idea that you're going to get fifty million pounds for for Brojet for a non-scoring striker is is fanciful. Um, Krista, one one player who does appear to be on the move in the transfer window. Jordan Henderson. Um, one, could you give us a quick update? I, it seems to be moving quite quickly and, and might be settled, well, soon today, Ajax. Um, he's going from from Saudi to Amsterdam, mate. There's quite a contrast in um, in cultures there for, for, for Jordan. What do you make of the whole thing? I mean, and what are your... First of all, if you could just tell us what exactly the state of play is at the moment. And there may be the reasons why. He's, he, the, 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 the stint in Saudi, the controversial stint in Saudi has been so short-lived? Yeah, so at the minute, um, he's due in Amsterdam today for a medical. So his, um, his team met with Ajax officials yesterday in Manchester. They kind of trashed out the final part of that deal. There's a few little things still to sort out, but nothing that won't be overcome. So his flight into Amsterdam is sorted. He should be arriving there this morning for a medical. Um, he'll become their highest paid player. Um, I think he'll earn around 110000 a week, which is a substantial cut from his Saudi wage. It's still not money to be sniffed at, but a huge cut. Um, he wants to play in Europe again. And why hasn't Saudi worked out? Um, surprisingly, he seems to have been surprised that it's quite warm over there um, and that uh, lifestyle is very different Uh in the Middle East. Now, obviously, he spent a lot of time living in Bahrain and travelling in, um, but that obviously wasn't um, easy either. It was a, quite a long journey um, to the Saudi uh, coast over that bridge in, from Bahrain. Um, but it was just a, the whole kind of lifestyle just hasn't, he has family hasn't settled, his, his, his partner, his kids just haven't enjoyed it over there. Um, but none of it should have really come to a surprise as him. They play... And they train quite late in the evenings. It means kind of, um, I know we've all been over there in the Middle East, the way of life is very different. Everything happens very late. So it's eating meals late at night, midnight, one o'clock. All of this didn't help his family settle. Um, I don't think his wife felt very kind of welcome at times at, at, at when she did attend games and stuff like that. So it's been difficult, but none of this should have come as a surprise to him. Um when you talk about football clubs doing due diligence, surely Jordan Henderson should have done his due diligence and realised what it was going to be like. It was going to be baking hot. It was going to be very hard to play in the games. And as a kind of a, a point I made in a piece today as well, that this thing that he was going to be a force for change, um, either growing the game or changing society over there, as much as I do like Jordan Henderson as a player, and I think he's been, he was a great servant to Liverpool and, he, I thought he deservedly won the FWA award when Liverpool won the league that year. He's Jordan Henderson. He's he, he he was Liverpool captain, which gave him a standing. But when you took that away, he was still just a very good number eight, number six midfielder. Those guys are box office. He's not Cristiano Ronaldo. He's not Neymar. He's not going to go out there and drive change in the country. 
He's not going to boost the audiences. People aren't going to rush to the turnstiles to see Jordan Henderson. Um, they're going to do that for Ronaldo. They're going to do that for Neymar. So I think he was very naive in the words that he said, whether he actually believed them or not is another thing, but it's all come tumbling down on him and it's it's quite sad for him because his reputation has took a hit. But as I always say, this is football and reputations can always be repaired, but it's a very, very long road for him back. Um, but I don't think he's come back for England because I think he would have been picked for the Euros even if he was playing in Saudi. The bottom line, Dunny, is with Jordan Henderson, he knew he was going to play a, a level of football which is very, very mediocre. And he knew that. I know Chris mentioned due diligence, but the one thing he did know for sure was he was going to play a standard of football that he's put. You know, players don't go there to, you know, raise the games. They go there to line the pockets. And he made that decision, made a lot of sacrifices, and I think he'll bit. He might never admit it, but I think he'll always bitterly regret going to Saudi, Jordan Henderson. Yeah, possibly. I mean, when you mentioned due diligence, Chris, I mean, also he was going to a club which, you know, in the structure of Saudi football, wasn't even a box office club. It wasn't one of the four PIF clubs. It wasn't uh, Al-Hilal. The average attendance is about 7,000, you know, and and that's not hard to find out, um, which is why it was just a bizarre move all round. You say, Chris, that you think he would have gone with England anyway, even if he'd stayed in Saudi. I I can't see how that would have happened, to be perfectly honest. I just just think that Gareth would have been in a a no-choice but not, not, not to pick him. But he picked him in September and October when he shouldn't have been picked. But he picked him in September, October then, don't forget. What you're going on there is his body of work of the previous season, which only ended in late May. And then I think he looked at him in the second camp and then you make a judgment, is he fit? Is he is he fit enough? Is he playing at the right standard? And I suspect that he would have... I mean, we, don't, we won't know now, but he, he, he would have said, listen, no, you know, you can't, you can't do this. It wouldn't, in fact, it wouldn't surprise me. It would not surprise me one bit if Southgate had not had either directly or indirectly some sort of input in him coming. It might have been a small measure, but, you know, they must have had the chat. Listen, if I stay in Saudi for this entire season in Pro League, you know, I mean, he didn't go out to see him, did he, Southgate? So would, would I be in? I don't know. But he spoke to Southgate last summer before he went to Saudi and he never, he, and he still went ahead with it. So I think he would have known the risk and I think he would have got some sort of confidence from Gareth that he would have continued to pick him. Well, do you think, do you think Ralph Gale picked Calvin Phillips in his Euro squad? If he plays in the second half of the season, if he takes one of the options that's available to him now and plays for, I don't know, a dozen games, more than a dozen games, then, then I think he'd probably take him, yeah. I only say that because you mentioned that he didn't think he'd pick Henderson if he'd stayed in Saudi, but he keeps picking Phillips for every squad and, and plays him, and he, he never get never gets a look in at City. It's what's going on with Calvin Phillips at Man City. No, 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 but but then that's for me. I, I think it was probably dependence on him. It is probably dependence on him getting a second half of the season in. You, we can't see, as, as as Crossy said, you can't see Phillips getting a look in. You know, City are now going for the the trouble again. And you've got Rodri, you've got you know um, Matteo Kovacic, you've got De Bruyne who's come back, you've had Foden playing in there. There's there's, there's no scope there for Phillips to get a, to get a look. So I think I, I think Southgate would ha- find it hard to justify picking Calvin Phillips for the, the Euro squad, but he may he may not have any other options. I think he's got options, but I, I do think he thinks Phillips is the best option, and I do think that you know I say I mean Phillips has to go. I mean clearly you know before the end of the transfer window he has to find 
somewhere to play for. The, he's not going to play at City. So, and I think City, you know, if they get the right money for a loan fee, will be happy to let him go. So I just think he needs to play. I say only a dozen games will be fine because he loves him. Southgate loves him. And when we say, oh, well, you know, it would be hard for him to justify. Southgate has been in the job that long and is so sure of himself and has built up so much credit in his own mind, at least, that he doesn't have to justify it to anyone, does he? The way he justifies it is by saying, there you go. I was in the quarterfinal of the World Cup. I was in a, a final of the European Championships. And I was in the semi-final of the World Cup. And and he is so sure of himself, so so comfortable in his own England skin that he doesn't have to justify it. All he, I mean, I think what he would need is Phillips just to get some competitive football in, because the bottom line is, if you take a player to how many times do we say, oh, players go to a major tournament, haven't played fifty odd games in a season, and they and they're wiped out? Well, that's not going to be the case with Calvin Phillips, or indeed probably with you know. So he can turn around and say, well. If he plays the second half of the season and plays a dozen games, he'd be fit as a fiddle. He'd be raring to go. But equally, they have to be match fit, don't they? You can't sit on the bench for the most of the season. As you say, a dozen games. But do you mean a dozen games, five minutes, you know, 85th minute sub? Or, you know, because that's all Calvin Phillips will be getting. Well, no, no. He, what I mean is him leaving today. That's what I'm trying to say. He's, yeah, yeah. Sorry, you misunderstand. The, the, he has to go. I mean, I, yeah, he's not playing for City. I've said that. He, he, he needs to go. But don't underestimate what Southgate believes in and, and, and what he trusts. He trusted Maguire when he was in the Manchester United team. He trusts Calvin Phillips. He, he, and, and the fact of the matter is, yes, him not playing is not ideal. It's not ideal from our point of view looking from the outside. But don't underestimate Southgate's loyalty to him. Don't underestimate what Southgate thinks is best for England. And if Calvin Phillips only plays a few games, club games, he'll still pick him because he absolutely believes in him. It's like Ivan Tony hasn't played football for eight months, but he'll come straight back into the Brentford team because the Brentford manager thinks he's the best he's got available. We're now in the third week of January and there's still no nothing to suggest remotely close to getting Calvin Phillips out of Man City. Listen, there's still time to go. But if he is still at Man City when the window shuts, I'll be absolutely astonished. He should be pushing and pushing to get out. I'm sure Guardiola would not stand in his way. There must be a Premier League club out there who can even if they take him on loan for the rest of the season to comply. Anyway, on the comments, Jonathan Harris, NHS Blue Heart, obviously blue, as I just said, Calvin Phillips, not interested, irrelevant discussion. So I'll move on. Thanks, Calvin. That contribution. We're talking of England and Southgate, and let's think about a possible successor to Southgate. I've heard it mentioned again in this week because he's now out of a job, and he almost took it once. Jose Marino. The big news: Jose Marino gone again this third season at the club. Um, Jezza, what next for him? <laughs> Who knows? Listen, he, he will get another job. That's that's without a shadow of a doubt. But we, some of us had to write comment pieces on Jose's sack, latest sacking early this week, and it's just he just he just looks like to me. He just looks like that guy who's lost that magic, manager of magic. You know, he's he's like the guy who football forgot almost and left behind. When you compare him to say. Is he an elite coach still, Mourinho? Probably not. Is, can you compare him to Pep and Klopp? Even Arteta at Arsenal's probably a better manager than he is now. Listen, 
Mourinho will go down as one of the all-time great managers. What he did winning those two Champions Leagues with those clubs was astonishing, really, in the circumstances. And he's had a lot of success, but he looks... He's starting to look his age. He looks tired. He looks stale. And look, it always ends the same way, doesn't it, with Mourinho? History always repeats itself with him. It always ends in acrimony and rancour at whatever club he leaves. The same with Tottenham and Chelsea the second time round. But in fact, he's managed Roma and Tottenham with respect to those two clubs. They've been his last two jobs. That tells you what level he's now operating at. So... And listen, he was a breath of fresh air when he came into English football and he was like a whirlwind and he was brilliant. And he turned Chelsea into the best team in Europe almost and won a lot of things. And, you know, we've all been in his company and he can be an engaging guy. And the thought of him managing England, though, it sends a shiver down my spine, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to happen. I mean, we were very, very, very close to that happening. Um, many many years ago, but it, it, it's not happened. A bit harsh there about him looking look, looking a bit tired for sixty, don't you think? Tell you why, don't you look bad for sixty, mate? Well, anyway, who wouldn't have him as England manager? It'd be box office. We'd love the quote. It'd be brilliant. It'd be the polar opposite to Southgate, wouldn't it? Yeah, it'd be back pages. Everybody, every journalist would love it. They'd be throwing players out of the bus left, right, and centre, wouldn't it? So, uh, right, let, let, let's let's just have a stab then, all of us. Where he ends up, club, country, Saudi. My money be on Saudi. Chris, where's he going? Yeah, I agree with Saudi. I give an outsider at Newcastle if if uh, if their form doesn't uplift and they might yeah they might go for the total opposite of Eddie Howe and and just get in somebody like him to try and bump them up the league a bit. I'd, I'd I tend to agree with that. I say Saudi is the logical logical option for him. The money's there. Um, you know, it, it would appeal to his ego, but I still think he feels, given that ego, that he probably has unfinished business in in Europe to do still. So I think he'd jump at the chance to go somewhere like Newcastle if if Newcastle continue to struggle and, and Eddie Howe continues to be under pressure and they decide to to make that change. Uh, you know, I think he'd jump at the chance to kind of prove it because he's he thrives on that, doesn't he? he thrives on conflict. He thrives on you know showing people that he's still got it. And I think although I can see him, as Crystal, I can see him ending up in Saudi. I think, you know, he's 61 next week, isn't he? He looks rough, though, Bob. looks terrible for 61, doesn't he, Crossy? I think he still feels he's got something to offer. Um, and, you know, that's what drives him on, I think, you know, that constant need to prove himself. Benjamin Button, what, what do you think, Benjamin? I don't, you don't know. Listen, the, the, the one thing we do know is he'll end up in a job relatively quickly, I would have thought. But there was some suggestion he might take an international job with a country, but I don't know. He, He'd get bored. I wouldn't, would he not get bored managing a country? You only have what, what, four or five games a year. He needs the trust of a club job. I don't know. I mean, he may. He, listen, the money would be staggeringly good in Saudi, but knowing Mourinho, he might think he's above all that. He might think that's beneath him going to manage level. So I don't know. He'll end up in Europe somewhere. I would imagine it won't. It won't happen soon. But I, you know, I, I just think that. I think maybe one more crack at Chelsea, you know. At some stage, you know, it won't happen soon. And, you know, Pochettino hopefully will will make a great job of things at Stamford Bridge. But of all the clubs he's been to, I, I, I just think, you know, I've uncovered Marino at various clubs around Europe. If there's one club I think that, if you'd say, was his, um, his spiritual home, I think you probably have to say Chelsea, mainly because he did so well there. It was such a such a, a thrilling time there. So, like you know, he, he was so transformative there. 
And I remember going to see him when we um, when we were giving him an award for the FWA at Chelsea at his office in Cobham at the Cobham Training Ground. And it just seemed to me that this was a place that, I don't know, that he, he just felt, it felt like London, that part of London, and Chelsea and all that went with it. Um, and was really, really what what suited him down to the ground out of all these things. And it would not surprise me if um, we see him for one more time there at some stage. I think you're right, Danny. I think, I mean, if you contrast that, just briefly, if you contrast that with, with Manchester, he lived in the Lowry Hotel, Lowry Hotel for two and a half years, never settled, never immersed himself in, in the city, you know, never moved to Cheshire or got an apartment in the city centre like Pep, Pep has done. Um, so I think you're right. His natural habitat, you know, he always kept the house in West London, didn't he? So, um, you know, maybe it will be third time lucky at Chelsea. And, and he loves the Premier League, you know, and he loves that cut and thrust, you know, um, that you get in the Premier League, which obviously we've got some games this weekend um, in the sort of a hybrid winter break. Um, I just want to mention a couple of those games. We've said about Palace, obviously they'll be flying at the Emirates now because Eze will have had an extra half hour's rest and Mitchell will be well rested up after coming off um, uh, after an hour as well. So they'll go and tear Arsenal apart, I would imagine, or probably not, Chris. Yeah, I don't, don't can't see that happening. Obviously, look, Arsenal haven't been on great form, have they? One win and five, um, title challenging, disappearing fast for them. But they'll have had the, a break now. Um, you would imagine a bit of a firing back here and trying to fire themselves back into that title chase because now Arsenal are looking over the shoulders and Tottenham are level on points with them. They play the game more with the level on points and suddenly Arsenal who were thinking that they were the ones that were going to push City this season and now suddenly could be in a top four battle, never mind the title. So they've got a fire back, but watching a lot of Palace last night, even for the first hour, they weren't offering much. I know they did a couple of chances um, in the first half and then a couple late on, but um, Everton were very, very poor, I thought, um, and they were still, still the better team. So I think they'll struggle at Arsenal. Jeremy, um, Liverpool away at Bournemouth on um, the last game, I think, on Sunday. Um, Bournemouth in, you know, decent form. Do you see Liverpool, though, going there and winning? Yeah, I do. Look, the top for a reason. They're the most consistent team. Yeah, but, the you know, they, they've been churning out the wins. I think they've won the last four. I, I might be wrong, but listen, they're, they're top because they've been the most consistent team this season. They've lost once all season, so I'd be I'd be pretty surprised if Bournemouth beat Liverpool. And they don't seem to miss Salah, you know, other people just standing up and other players, you know, coming up to, to, to fill his boots while, he, while he's away. So, you know, I, I don't envision anything other than a Liverpool win, really. I just want to finish mentioning Liverpool there. If Liverpool win, then there's a little bit of separation, depending, obviously, Arsenal need to win to, to make sure that gap doesn't get any wider at the top. Just to ask you all, um, one by one, is it a two-horse race now, the Premier League, as we as we start to really gear up for the, well, not the final stretch, but certainly the well into the second half of the season? Two-horse race, Chris? Yeah, um, I think it's now between Liverpool and City. I don't think Arsenal have the firepower up front to... To stick with these two. No one think Villa can win the title. Two horse race? No, no, we're gone. Yeah, I think Villa will fade away. I think Villa would be absolutely delighted just to get in the top four. That'd be an amazing season for them. I think it'll be between City and Liverpool. I think City will win it. 
I'd, I would agree. I think we've seen it, seen it in most seasons, apart from you know last season when Liverpool were in, in transition, had a lot of injuries. I think they're back now. They've got attacking options, as Chris and, and Crossy have said. Arsenal don't have the firepower. You know they've not won in the last four Premier League games, and I think City, when you look at them having De Bruyne now back, um, you know showed showed at Newcastle what they've been missing. You know about their little blip already. They've got Haaland to come back. They've got John Stones to come back. They've got the squad. They've been there. They've done it before. Uh, and as I say, Liverpool have got all the attacking options, even without Salah for a, a few weeks. They've got Diaz, Gak, uh, Gakpo. You know, Jota. They've got so many options up front. Um, I, I see them both pulling away from the rest of the pack as they have done in previous seasons and, and battling it out with each other. Chris, yeah, who, who, who to us, reason who wins it, mate? Still think um, Man City. I just think with De Bruyne back, um, they're going to now go to another level again. Um, and I think yeah, it'll just be a bit too much for Liverpool, but they'll come again next year. Haaland's got to come back as well, remember? Yeah, the small matter of that, Rafael, he, he scores the odd goal too. The, the small amount of that, yeah. And City can always call on Calvin Phillips. For what it's worth, um, I, I think it's a two-horse race, and I think that Liverpool will um, will win it. Um, and this time next week, we'll also know if um, if Liverpool have made it through to the Carabao Cup final. Um, they're the midweek games next week. Chelsea, Borough, second leg, and uh, Liverpool, Fulham. I'm sure we'll have a look at those uh, this time next week. So join us then, 10 o'clock, for another episode of Football Digest. Thanks for listening and watching today. Thank you. 